turn your attention with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 this morning. As you turn there, let's take a moment and pray together. Oh, Father, we're, we're grateful for this time to gather this morning to celebrate this astounding event that has taken place in human history, the coming and birth of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes to behold him this morning, ears to hear his voice, hearts that have room for him and receive him as we hear your word proclaimed. Pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Lord, Lord Peter Whimsey is the whimsical character thought up by the brilliant mind that was Dorothy Sayers. Sayers was a, a writer and thinker from the early to mid-1900s, during which time she wrote a number of delightful mystery novels wherein this fictional English aristocrat happens upon gruesome murders and stolen items, and he's, he's left again and again to solve the mystery. Well, interestingly, about midway into the series of novels, a new character mysteriously shows up into the world of Lord Peter, one Harriet Vane. A Vane is, is almost immediately a, a love interest for Lord Peter, and eventually, after a few books, after solving a few mysteries together, she gives in and they end up getting married. And what's peculiar about Vane is that she bears remarkable resemblance to her creator. Harriet Vane is one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford in England. Dorothy Sayers actually was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. Vane herself is a, is a mystery novelist. Dorothy Sayers act obviously was a mystery novelist. Vane reflects Sayers down to some of the very interesting details of of Sayers' scandalous romantic life. We, we might very well say that Harriet Vane is Dorothy Sayers. In other words, what, what readers witness in these delightful mystery stories is a case of an author becoming a character in her own story. Sayers wrote herself into a world of her own making. She fell in love with a character of her very own fashioning, and she came into the story to marry him. We're celebrating something kind of like that this morning. This season is centered on and celebrating the reality of the author coming into the story of God having put on flesh, of the divine taking upon himself humanity, which, which is a marvel in and of itself this morning. It's something astounding, worthy of our awe and astonishment, but part of what we've been considering over this last month and what we want to continue to consider this morning is this, why? Why did God become man in Jesus the Christ? Why did God come and take on human vesture? What was and is the purpose of the divine descent in the babe of Bethlehem? Well, 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us precisely why. And so we want to look at this text here this morning where the Apostle Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy, his beloved friend in the faith, and he says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There are three steps I want us to take in our journey through this text this morning. I want us to to look at Paul here as an atrocious sinner. And second, I want us to consider the astounding salvation of Christ. And third, I want us to consider how Paul's saying here is an acceptable statement that we ought to receive this morning. And so see here an atrocious sinner, an astounding salvation, and an acceptable statement. First, an, an atrocious sinner. This is the way that Paul describes himself. He says here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of course, here Paul uses this offensive term we Christians often use to describe humanity, the dreaded word sinner. And I know that word isn't too popular today. Today we tend to prefer words like imperfections or mistakes to describe what we've historically called sin. And yet, a mistake would be spilling your coffee this morning or taking a wrong turn on the way to church. Sin is a rejection and rebellion against God. Sin is more like what we think of when we hear the word treason. In fact, that that word is rather fitting. Notice here in our verse that, that Jesus of Nazareth is called Christ. Christ Jesus. And, and, and Christ, realizes, is not a last name. It's a title. It means anointed one. And just so, Jesus is the one God has anointed to be king. Calling Jesus Christ is like calling him king. And yet, Who among us have not chosen to reject the king's will for our lives? Who among us have not chosen to love and prefer other things before him? Thus the word sinner and treason are exactly appropriate. However, don't mistake Paul here. You're an arrogant, prideful, finger-wagging preacher condescendingly speaking to you and to me is belonging to a category that he doesn't himself belong to. He identifies himself as belonging to this group categorized as sinners. And even goes further, describing himself as the foremost. This word translated as as foremost here is a word that means first. He He means to say that out of all the sinners populating the world, which is to say every human being that has ever existed save one, he is the worst. Paul says, out of all sinners, I have been the most vile. I have been the most egregious. I have been the most depraved. Out of all the sinners in the world, I am the first rank, rankest sinner there is. If sin were the color red, we would all be some shade of red, Paul would tell us. But Paul would say, I I would be the reddest of all. And of course, if you were to read the, the, the previous verses, you would see in part why Paul refers to himself as such. He makes direct reference to his past and life before Christ. And and yet even when Paul refers to himself as as the first-ranked sinner, he doesn't mean to say here that before he was a Christian, he he wasn't religious. He was very religious. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the the epistle to the Philippians, he he lays out his religious resume prior to Christ, which was in, in many ways supremely impressive. However, he states explicitly that he counts it all as being utter rubbish because all the while, no matter how religious he was, no amount of religious fervor could cover his blackened and hardened heart. Paul was outwardly religious, but he didn't possess what we might call true religion. How many of you 
know that it is entirely possible to be very religious and all the while be devoid of true Christian love. It is very possible, entirely possible to have a religious veneer about you all the while love to God and love to neighbor are completely absent. That was Paul. As he says of himself in just two verses prior, prior to knowing Christ, he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And indeed, prior to his conversion, Paul cursed the name of Jesus Christ. He persecuted, seeing, overseeing the arrest and even the killing of Christians. He was opposed to God's goodwill taking place in this world. So part of what Paul means here when speaking of himself as an atrocious sinner like this has to include his life prior to Christ. And just so, friends, Jesus did come for people with a past. People like Paul. And like those of us willing to be honest this morning. And I, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've, I've interacted with individuals who think that their past, the vile things they've said and done and felt and thought disqualified them from life with God. And of course, in a sense, they're right. Sin does disqualify us from life with God. And yet, that is precisely why Christ has come. To overcome our disqualification with His supreme qualification. To overcome our sin with his sovereign salvation. To give divine grace to people with a past. To defeat our sin and give us life with God forever. In fact, the apostle here goes on to say that the reason Christ rescued and called him was to show all those who would come after what God does and can do with people like himself. And seeing that Christ called Paul, we're to see and say that, well, if Christ is so gracious, so merciful, so patient, so as to love and save and redeem the likes of Paul, then maybe there's hope for someone like me. And if we reach such conclusions, we get the point exactly. And yet, pressing into Paul's words a little closer here, I wonder if you notice that he speaks of himself as a sinner in the present tense. He doesn't say that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. And he says, of whom I am, present tense, the foremost. And here in saying this, Paul states something every true Christian feels to be true of themselves, doesn't he? And this is the universal Christian experience. That when we begin to get a real sight of God, and all of His holiness and goodness and perfection, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see God and what we are before Him, we begin to see how truly sinful and fallen we are. Indeed, preacher John Stott well captures the essence of Paul's words here, writing that Paul had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them and concluded that he was, the worst, he was worse than them all. The truth is rather that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, it makes me think of a pastor when in his day he was unfairly accused of all sorts of heinous things by his critics, he was continually met with an onslaught of public attacks, and yet he's recorded as saying in response, I'm not angry with those who think ill of me. I am far worse than they think I am. 
Indeed, everyone whose conscience has been awakened by the Holy Spirit, everyone who has been able to take a real and lucid look at themselves and their hearts by grace, everyone who's able to take sober reflection of their thoughts and intentions and desires, everyone who without self-justification or defensiveness is able to look at the things they've said to others with their mouths and done to others with their hands, everyone who's able to be real with themselves and before God can say with Paul, I am the foremost. I am the worst. I am an atrocious sinner. Paul says he would be the most red if all sin was some shade of red, but I would claim that for myself this morning, and everyone who's had a conscience awakened by the Holy Spirit could say the same. Yet if you're able to recognize such reality, there is good news for you this morning. There is an astounding salvation for atrocious sinners like us. Look at the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice Paul calls this a saying. And in this, we, we see an indication here that this would have been a sentence that Timothy and other Christians were, would have been familiar with at the time. Indeed, it's, it's believed to be something like a creed that first century Christians would have maybe confessed together in worship or used as a way of teaching one another. And thus, it's, it's, a, it's a theologically compact statement. There's a lot in this statement. It's small, but it packs a big punch. First here, as we mentioned a moment ago, it speaks about Christ Jesus. It speaks of Jesus as the anointed one, as the king, as the Lord, as Christ. And then as we go on, we see something so peculiar about the kind of king in Christ that Jesus is. He's not a king who wields regal authority in order to subjugate and oppress as we often associate with such titles. Rather than being a king who subjugates, Jesus is the kind of king who serves. You see this clearly as the statement goes on. Notice that it says that he came into the world. It doesn't say that he was made or created, does it? It doesn't even say that he was born, although he was. But this this statement is carefully crafted in order to say that he came, and it says this because the statement wants to make it abundantly clear to us that Jesus existed prior to his birth. This is communicating to us that the person we behold in the babe of Bethlehem existed prior to his birth. That is to say, he's not only a human being, but he is also God. Christ Jesus is truly man, but he's also truly God. The Apostle John says about him in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, so he existed prior to his birth, prior to the beginning even. And even before the beginning, before his birth, John says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then going on to state what we're celebrating this morning, John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As the Christian hymn says, He has come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. You see, although the Son and Word of God has always existed as God with every right and perfection and happiness as God, in a mystery that surpasses our ability to comprehend, the Word assumed our humanity and came to dwell with us in our fallen, tragic world. He wrote Himself into the story to taste our tragedy, to suffer our sadnesses, to experience the ache that we experience as human beings. The author becomes a character in the world of His own making. And this is where we come to the vital question. Why? 
why would he do this? Why has he done this? The answer, to save sinners. To save sinners. Just, just as you shouldn't misunderstand the Apostle Paul here to be a finger-wagging, condescending preacher, so you shouldn't view Jesus of Nazareth as being a finger-wagging, disgusted God who wants nothing to do with filthy sinners like us, who have rejected and rebelled against him. No, he is full of love and mercy and grace and kindness. There is more mercy in him than there is sin in us. He is so moved with compassion that the Son has moved toward us in our sin and all in order to save us. And how did he save us? Well, in addition to taking on flesh, he took on our death. He did it by his cross. You see, the very body he assumed in Bethlehem was taken on so that it might hang on the cross of Calvary. He came so that he might die so that we who trust in him who have died might live and live forever. Because on that cross, he took upon himself our sin. And taking our sin upon himself, he took the penalty of justice that our sins deserve. And having taken on our penalty, we are granted forgiveness and amnesty from Christ the King. And that's not all. Because the body assumed in Bethlehem and that hung on the cross of Calvary would actually go on to rise to newness of life outside of Jerusalem three days later. And that to prove and show that sin and death have been forever defeated so that all who place their faith and trust in Christ Jesus will live forever with him when he comes again. Right now, he is ascended to heaven where he sits enthroned over all of heaven and earth as Christ and King, but one day he will come back. And when he comes again, he will bring his kingdom and he will make all things new when we live forever. In God's new world, this world and our lives will be finally as they should be because we will be with our Savior King. This is our astounding salvation. And all that's left for us to do this morning is to receive it as an acceptable statement. The apostle begins this verse with saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And in this, we, we find that this saying, this statement, was, was never meant to hang out there as a mere abstraction. This statement ought to be accepted, and the Christ it shows is meant to be trusted in by us. As John Stott says about these very words, the universal offer is one thing. Its individual acceptance is another. In other words, the Christ that came to save sinners will be of no benefit to you unless you receive and accept and trust in him for yourself. If I could illustrate it this way, to hear this statement without accepting and trusting in the Christ it puts forth is kind of like getting a gift on Christmas Day without the batteries needed. It'd be like coming down on, on Christmas Day to your Christmas tree on Christmas morning and see all those presents piled underneath, tearing one of those boxes open and finding a brand new Game Boy. Which I don't know if that's a thing anymore. But just for the sake of the illustration, just imagine it's a Game Boy. You get your very own Game Boy, and you're ready, you're pumped to play it, and you're, you're going to play Mario or uh, the Pokemon or, or something along those lines, right? Yeah, you're right. It's, 
But then just imagine your, your parents, that's just good. Just imagine your parents didn't get you the batteries needed for this brand new Game Boy. And it's Christmas Day, right? Everything is closed. So it's not like you can just go out and get batteries. So you've got this Game Boy, but you've got no way to enjoy it. Well, Christ coming into the world to save sinners is kind of like that. Unless we have the batteries, unless we trust him and accept him and receive him for ourselves, we cannot enjoy him and the gift of salvation that he has come to bring. This statement needs to be trusted and accepted by us if we will be sinners who are saved. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you've come at the invitation of a friend or a loved one. Maybe you've come as a matter of custom because of the holiday season. Whatever the reason, we're glad you've come. You're welcome here at any time. But I, I would encourage you and invite you to give the person who invited you the best gift imaginable this morning. Give yourself the best gift imaginable this morning by receiving and trusting in the statement and the Christ that it offers us. This Jesus is the Christ that has come into the world to save and redeem sinners. And if you, like me, like Paul, know that that describes you, know that he's come for the very likes of you and me and Paul and, and all who find themselves to be far more broken than they want to be this morning. That is the very reason and purpose of Christmas. That is the reason that the creator put on creation that the author wrote himself into the story, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray together. And Father, we give you great praise and thanks that you have orchestrated such a great salvation for us, that you have planned it that Christ has accomplished it. And we ask now this morning that the Holy Spirit would apply it to the hearts of those in need. We pray that for those of us who have already received and accepted this statement in the Christ it puts forth, that you would fill us with the joy, a renewed joy, a renewed sense of, of glory in this astounding reality. Put our hearts in awe of Jesus and his salvation this morning. Restore to us the joy of our salvation as we come to the table of Jesus to receive him afresh through bread and through the cup this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.